Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Stein, an attorney at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute. As April 2021 draws to a close, more counties across the state are starting to reopen courts and schedule jury trials using COVID-19 safety protocols. Thus, going forward, at least for the foreseeable future, jury trials are going to look a little different than we're used to. And that brings us to the topic of today's discussion. Our guest today is John Carson of the Schenectady District Attorney's Office. Now, John recently completed the first jury trial in Schenectady under COVID-19 protocols. And this trial was the first in Schenectady since the fall of 2020 when courts closed down statewide for a second time. And we're fortunate to have John here to discuss his experience during that trial. Now, first, a little bit about John. He's a proud graduate of the College of St. Rose, which, by the way, also produced Jimmy Fallon. And John also graduated Albany Law School. He's a career prosecutor in the Schenectady DA's office, where he is bureau chief in charge of the Special Victims Unit, which handles domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse prosecutions. John, welcome, and thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, happy to be here, Paul. Uh, when, you, when you asked me to do it, I immediately thought what a good resource NIFTY is to me, so I certainly can't turn down people that have helped me so many times over the years that I've been in the office. Well, we appreciate it, and we're glad that so, John, in terms of the trial that you just completed, could you just give everybody a brief overview of the facts of that case? Yeah, it was a criminal sex act in the first degree was the top count. It was a small indictment. The second count was just endangering the welfare of a child. It involved a, at the time, 25-year-old male engaged in anal sexual conduct with a 10-year-old male at the time. They are cousins or step cousins, depending on how specific you get with the nature of the relationship. The conduct occurred all the way back in the summer of 2017. The child delayed disclosure for two years until the summer of 2019. This was a case we would have tried in, you know, April or May of 2020, but for COVID. And then we got pushed off even another year. So we were talking about an incident almost four years old at the time of trial. So the boy was 14 at the time of testimony. So that's the general overview of the case. So was, yeah. uh, was the defendant out during the whole time, out on bail? Yeah, uh, this, this particular uh, defendant had strong family support and his mother and stepfather posted a substantial bond on his behalf. And he always appeared in court. He was always timely. So he remained out during the pendency of the entire trial, ultimately, remanded upon a guilty verdict at the very, very end. And uh, child abuse cases, John, are always difficult to try, as you know. How come this was the first case that was selected to go since November of 2020? Well, at least in Schenectady County, there's probably a couple reasons. Reason one is our judges are generally working off of a sort of standards and goals list of oldest cases or the nearly oldest cases are going to go first sort of regardless of the fact patterns. One of the nice things about being in a smaller county, though, is probably point two here, is there's only two county court judges and two court attorneys and practicing in the county for years. You do develop some level of professional working relationship. I was approached by the court attorney asking to schedule the first trial on a different case, actually a predatory sexual assault case involving two adults, but a dangerous instrument as an aggravating factor that has several rounds of DNA testing and witnesses in the state of Texas and weeks and weeks of trial. I informally said, 
I understand we're going to start trials. I'm happy to be the first trial for the office. I'm not asking to get out of a trial, but this other case is as old as the much more complicated, longer case. And I'm going to call maybe three or four witnesses on the case we did try. What do you guys think about if it works for the defense attorney on this case? What do you think if we maybe get a serious trial with a serious set of allegations, but maybe we do a shorter, less complicated based on number of bodies in and out of the building trial at the court? agreed it fit their timeline well. So that's how we ended up with this case. So you were able to talk with your court, talk with your defense bar, come up with a case that was less complicated in terms of logistics and experts and evidence and things like that, and settle on a case to sort of shake out the procedures and see how that would work? Yeah, I think once I made the suggestion, everybody kind of in the room got to weigh in on it and everybody collectively thought, that it was a, a pretty good idea. And so we made the decision. It's nice to have a good working relationship, you know, with the court and court attorneys and clerks and defense bar when you can. So, John, before you guys started trial, was there discussions with the court and the defense attorney about physically or mechanically how the courtroom would be set up and how people would be sitting and how the court would be arranged? Yes. And I really think that that's kind of essential. I think it would be a terrible thing for everybody to get into jury selection on a Monday morning and not have had these discussions. I would say we had them both informally and formally. When this trial was selected and it was given a date, there was some informal email phone conversations between the court and the defense attorney and I, really the court attorney, the defense attorney and I, about that. And we actually had a full in-person meeting the week before trial in the trial courtroom we were going to use. It included the judge, my office, myself, plus some other senior staff members who wanted to be there, the defense attorney, our commissioner of jurors, our captain of our court officers for the building, along with both of our county court judges. And we talked about every detail we could think of, where people were going to sit, who was going to be in masks, how people were going to be brought in and out of the courtroom as witnesses, how jurors were going to be in and out of the courtroom. I think the goal for everybody in that meeting was to try to eliminate as many surprises as we could going into it to try to make it feel as smooth or as normal as we could. And certainly stuff pops up along the way that you didn't think of right away. But we we did iron out many of the clear issues beforehand. So did you use that as an opportunity to sort of set up like a protocol or written guidelines for the other trials going forward, things that are going to be standard practice now, at least as far as COVID is an issue? I do think it will be treated as very much a template for how all sides can expect a trial to proceed, you know, where jurors are going to be placed, how jury selection is going to be conducted. So I'm unaware that anything was written. Certainly nothing was written and distributed amongst different departments or agencies within the county about it. But it, certainly it'll be a template going forward. So give us an idea physically how you guys set up the courtroom, how your tables were arranged, first of all. What did you decide about masks and plexiglass and, and things like that? At least in the courtroom that we used, there was plexiglass around where the stenographer and the court clerk were seated. There was not plexiglass anywhere else in the courtroom. 
you know, every county is going to be a bit different here because every county has different size courtrooms. Under the COVID protocols, we can fit maybe 28 people in the courtroom that they intend to use for trial. So both attorneys' tables were basically pushed almost all the way against the far wall as far back from the jury box as they could, where normally you'd be in the center of the room closer to the jury box. You know, usually I'm about eight or 10 feet from the jury box. I was at the other side of the room for this trial. So your counsel tables are now facing the jurors as opposed yes. to being side views? Yes, yes. So you, you're, you're, if you're looking straight ahead, you would be looking directly at, well, you'd be looking at the jury box where there are a few jurors seated, but jurors are also spread around the courtroom, all in masks, at least six feet apart. It kind of looks like a lightly populated calendar day in some ways. There's just people around the room. And then there's certainly court officers in masks, the judge in the courtroom in a mask. Everybody is masked in the courtroom. For witnesses, for witness testimony, witness would come in with a traditional you know, cloth style mask on, and then they would shift to a clear face shield. Uh, the way I've described it to people who have asked me is, it looks like an incredibly cheap welder's mask. It sort of is a band that goes around their forehead with a clear shield in the front. Once that's on for their testimony, they would take down their mask. That way jurors can see people's faces and, and draw their credibility determinations upon demeanor as appropriate. We did have an interesting issue with the defendant, which is what would the defendant be wearing in court? I was adamant for two reasons, that the defendant be in a clear face shield or a clear mask. Reason one is for identity, you know, witnesses identifying the defendant. All of my witnesses identified the defendant. Although to be frank, identity is not a significant issue in this case. This was a family upon family sexual assault. So really the police officer would be the only person who testified who didn't know him for years and years and years. But point two is, at least in my experience, not all defendants behave themselves in the most appropriate fashion at their table. And if he were to stare down the child victim or be snickering or those things, I want the jury to be able to make credibility determinations about him and his demeanor as well as, as they're watching him. I think anybody who's done a lot of trials knows that jurors are fascinated by the defendant at the defense table and what he's doing and how he's behaving. And so I was adamant about that. The Office of Court Administration provided a clear mask for the defendant. So it would be, I guess you could think of it as a traditional cloth mask that you would normally see. That's how it would fit on the face, except in the center where it covers your mouth and your nose, it's actually just a little piece of plastic. Based on discussion with the judge, he was fine with the defendant being in that. And he left it up to the defense attorney as to whether the attorneys would wear regular masks, whatever we were comfortable in, or would wear those clear face masks provided by the Office of Court Administration as well. The defense attorney initially decided that he thought so that everybody looked the same, we would all wear those. You'd all wear the clear masks. Yes, all, all the clear masks. Yeah. So we did that because it was, I would wear whatever as long as I could have the defendant wear what I wanted him to wear, which was the clear face mask provided by OCA. We did that for the first day of jury selection, and the defense attorney and I both concluded that these were perhaps the most uncomfortable, horrid things we've ever worn. They were very humid on your face and would fog up all of the time. 
as you're talking. If you are sitting there not talking, they're doable. They're a little worse than a regular mask. But if you're up in a voir dire for 20, 25 minutes, they became nearly unbearable. So at the end of the day, he and I looked at each other and both said, the defendant will wear the clear mask and we're both going to just wear what we're comfortable in because it's too hard to work. And being that ID wasn't really an issue in your case, I guess it was less of an issue for the defense attorney. So when, when you were talking to the jurors during jury selection or examining witnesses or doing your openings and summations, were the attorneys wearing masks the whole time as well? Or did you take them off while you were speaking? No, everybody was required to be in a mask at all times. In fact, I was in the courtroom alone after closings when the jury had just been sent out. And because of the time of the day, we were breaking for lunch. And I kind of took my mask down to get a little more air on my face, at least. And a court officer who was waiting for me to leave came over and told me to put my mask back on all the way. So masks all the time, no matter what you were doing. John, take me through a little bit how you guys did jury selection, because obviously you're not bringing up entire panels into the courtroom now because that's going to be way over the limit of the amount of people you're allowed to have in your courtroom. So how did you guys run through the mechanics of jury selection and how did you bring the panels in and what did you do with the folks that weren't, for lack of a better phrase, in the box, even though they were more spread out? I think, Paul, this is perhaps the oddest or the hardest part to get used to or the part that will look and feel the most different, or at least it did to me. I will start with saying that in Schenectady, traditionally, we would bring in, you know, 75 to 150 people and we would, you know, jam them into one courtroom and do what I think everybody is kind of used to doing. For this, under COVID protocols, with the numbers that were permitted in each courtroom, the decision was made that a jury pool would be called in each day that we would need to select potential jurors with a maximum of 42 jurors permitted in the building. And they were spread out over three courtrooms. So I'll just say for ease of the example, courtroom one is where we were conducting the trial. The attorneys, the judge, everybody is in that courtroom, plus 14 jurors spread around that room. The other 28 jurors were placed in courtroom two and courtroom three and were listening via microphone and a closed circuit streaming system that the county had set up through big screen TVs or projector screens in the other courtrooms. So that's how we divvied them up with a max of 42 a day coming in. So we actually went through a full panel on Monday and had a new group of 42 brought in Tuesday as a second pool. So how many came in to the courtroom so you guys could question them before exercising your challenges? So for each panel, we would have 14 jurors in each panel, uh, four voir dire. We still did the old sort of Rolodex, random ball hopper, jury number thing. And then the court officers would move the corresponding jurors from courtroom two and courtroom three into courtroom one to be seated. And then we would conduct a voir dire of 14. And then we just kept repeating that process throughout the day until we exhausted the number of jurors that were brought in with, you know, Monday's pool. And then we picked up again with a new 42 pool on Tuesday. And so what happened or did it happen that jurors had to have private conversation? You know, sometimes there's a topic that comes up that they don't want to speak about in front of everybody. So you bring them into a room and then you ask them what it is and they tell you and you decide whether or not you're going to keep them. Did you guys have those private conversations with jurors or not? 
So yes, but limited in the number, way fewer than would be my experience on a case like this typically. Before the trial started, the judge basically told the defense attorney and I that he was going to really try to limit those private conversations, moving people in and out of rooms and that sort of thing, the mechanics because of COVID of doing that. So a number of times jurors, especially about the nature of this case, indicated that it would be difficult for them. And he kind of asked the, you know, the one clear follow-up question. So you're telling me right now that based on just the nature of the charges I've read you, you would find it difficult to even follow my instructions about not forming, you know, an opinion until you've heard all the evidence. And somebody would say, yeah. And then maybe we would have a private conversation in the past where somebody would try to rehab that potential juror. We just didn't do that. Everybody kind of just looked at each other and nodded and understood that this was going to go. So I kind of let a lot of them go without much of a fight. So you guys basically excused a lot of them on consent just with real limited inquiries then? Yes, based on certain specific answers. We did have a few private conversations, maybe two or three total. And at least lucky for us, we have one large jury deliberation room where you added up the number of people that had to be there, attorneys, defendant, defense attorney, stenographer, we had room for one more person so we could have that one person come into that jury deliberation room and have that conversation. So that actually, although the judge still really worked hard to limit them, it was not mechanically that difficult if it had to happen. I imagine, well, just in hearing the way the jury selection process is going, I think one of the things that strikes me is that you're not really seeing the rest of the panel while you're talking to the folks in the box. So you don't really know what's out there as you're sort of exercising your challenges. I found that to be the most disconcerting strategically about jury selection. You know, usually you kind of see who you have in the box and you at least peer off to your right or your left and you kind of get a feel for who's in the room, who's not. You could not do that here. Every time you had 14 people in the room, it was a surprise panel. You had no idea what was coming next. It was unusual. And strategically, I actually internally thought to myself while we were doing it, I'm not sure what I have next. So on this close call, maybe I should just take this as opposed to risking something worse down the road because I don't even know who else is in the building. Let's move to the trial itself. Was there any special arrangements made in terms of how you worked with exhibits? Were there any physical exhibits or photographs that you used screens for, or did you approach the witnesses to show them the exhibits? How has that worked out for your trial? So as far as approaching the witnesses, it was done in the standard fashion, in the way that we've always done it. If I had an exhibit for a particular witness, I could approach that witness and I would actually put all of my exhibits for that witness on the table before they were seated or on the witness stand before they were seated so that I wasn't actively approaching them. But for when I took all of the exhibits back and did what I was going to do with them very quickly. As far as the judge, you could not approach the judge. If you wanted something given to the judge, you needed to provide it to a court officer who then would hand it to a judge. As far as publishing exhibits, we have both projector hooked to a laptop along with an Elmo, you know, just the standard projector. And I made the decision that photographs that I was going to use, I placed on CDs just because it's an easier way to display them anyway. I would have done that probably not in COVID times anyway, based on that courtroom. It's just easier to have the witness 
admit the CD and then publish the photos on a big screen as opposed to try to hand a bunch of still photos to the jury or however else you would have to do that. And that worked the same as it did in normal days. Yeah, absolutely the same. Once the CD was admitted, I would, you know, pop it into the laptop and we would just roll through uh, based on the position of the plexiglass and where the screen had to be for the witness. Their view was substantially obstructed. And actually, a couple of times I asked the judge to allow them out of the box and to stand in the middle of the room to better view and describe the image that was displayed. That sort of gets me thinking about witnesses and since you didn't have that many witnesses in your case, is there any problem in terms of finding waiting areas for them while they waited to testify? Was there any issues? Did your child need a support person in court with them? Was there any thought given to that? As far as space with the number of witnesses, it was not an issue here based on the timing of the trial. I called my first witness at the end of the day, Tuesday. It was the only witness that I brought into the building that day. And then I staggered my second and third witness so that they weren't really here together. Plus, you know, we certainly have enough space in my office, which is in the courthouse itself, which makes it a bit easier to accommodate one or two witnesses. If I had a day where I was going to cattle call basically a bunch of patrol officers and call 12 witnesses in a day, space would become very problematic. Instead of witnesses now, spectators. Did you have spectators who wanted to watch the trial? And how did you guys deal with that? Yes, there were a number of spectators that wanted to watch the trial. We size-wise were at the absolute end of space that we were allowed to have in the courtroom. We actually had zero seats available for anyone other than the witness and who needed to be there, the jury, the judge, to be in the courtroom. So the Office of Court Administration to leave the courtroom open, if you will, under COVID circumstances streamed the trial to a second courtroom in the building where the public or members of my office or other attorneys who happened to be in the building, whoever wanted to, could go into that courtroom and they would watch projected on a screen the proceedings live to facilitate that and to make sure that they could hear what was going on. I and the defense attorney wore lapel mics during the trial to make sure we were picked up and the witness in the witness stand and the judge on the bench have microphones right in front of them. And so that's how we facilitated leaving the courtroom open despite under COVID protocols, having no actual physical seats in the room. I remember the other part of that prior question, Paul, it was about a support person for the victim. In this case, my victim was a 14-year-old boy who We asked about having one of our victim advocates with him, and he was not particularly interested in that. So we didn't have to address the issue of having a support person there, although it is something that I thought about on other cases. I certainly do a lot of cases with children, and I think you just have to be adamant with the court that the child has a right to have a support person there and to have a support person in the room with them, and they have to accommodate it. Just in those overflow rooms, I'm assuming that there are court officers in there as well, just to monitor how many people are in there and to make sure that there's no disputes among adverse parties. Yeah, absolutely. If there's any civilian in any of those rooms, then court officers are staffing them. Actually, the the chief clerk here made the decision because both the victim's family and the defendant's family at least had some people here every day. They decided on their own to open up a separate courtroom and actually have two separate courtrooms getting 
the trial streamed just to avoid the likelihood of an issue. So they actually asked the victim's family to go to, say, courtroom two and the defendant's family to go to courtroom three. They had court officers in both, but they made that decision on their own to try to limit any sort of family altercation. John, once the trial moved to deliberations, can you describe the setup that the jurors used to conduct their deliberations? Did they deliberate in the courtroom or did they have another room to go to? We here, at least in Schenectady County, we have six courtrooms in our building. So when deliberations were starting, the jurors actually deliberated in one of the unused courtrooms to make sure that they had space. It was certainly big enough to accommodate 12 of them in there, and they were in and out, you know, within a half hour. So all told, I mean, you're using about three courtrooms for one trial. Yeah, I would say we're using half of the courtrooms for a trial, and then there was one other courtroom that would be conducting the other judge's calendar when they're conducting calendar. So yeah, it certainly cuts down on the amount of spaces that other people in the building can use, which is why, at least here in Schenectady County, we're not conducting criminal and civil trials at the same time. So basically, the criminal judges get a term, they get about a month when they can conduct however many trials they can conduct. And then the civil judges are getting the next month to do whatever they're going to do as far as trials go and kind of rotating. So we're, we're not going to do a lot of trials this year, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, if you're using up that much space, yeah. Now, did the judge give, in addition to his usual instructions, did he give the jurors any special instructions regarding COVID, like reporting if they've come in contact with somebody or they're experiencing symptoms or they need to get tested? Did he require tests or anything like that? There was no requirement of tests. To gain admittance to the building, all of the jurors needed to be able to pass through the court officers' screening protocols, which include taking a temperature and then answering in the negative four or five questions that would cover basically what you just outlined, Paul. The judge didn't add any additional requirements beyond those requirements to get into the building. He did certainly, once jurors were sworn, gently ask them to be extra vigilant because of how difficult it would be to lose jurors along the way and the likelihood of a mistrial. But that was a gentle, I wouldn't even call it an admonishment, a gentle request or plea, you know, to just really be careful and try not to get yourself in a situation where you're going to be quarantined or sick. So he didn't give them an instruction that they had to report to him if they were feeling sick or if someone close to them was feeling sick. He did not. And, you know, I didn't ask him why he did or didn't. My belief is because they would have to report that at the door to the court officers, that information would have been immediately reported to him anyway. So I think they kind of have already gone through that layer. It would be an odd situation, certainly for a juror to not disclose that to get into the building and then come upstairs and be seated and then disclose it. So I think we were covered by those initial questions, which they had to do every single day that they came. To, to be admitted to the building. John, were there any concerns or any issues that arose during the trial that you can think of going forward that you'd want to pass on to your colleagues to be aware of? Yeah, we lost a juror due to COVID protocols. The trial lasted from Monday to Thursday, and we lost alternate number one on Wednesday, not because he was ill, but because he had been directed by his doctor to quarantine pending a test result. We started on a Monday, the weekend prior. He evidently had spent some time with family members. 
certainly nothing wrong with that and would expect people to do those sorts of things. And one of his family members started feeling ill on Tuesday night and went and got a test and tested positive for COVID. He did the right thing. He called his physician who immediately directed him to quarantine. So we lost alternate juror number one after two days, and we were down to then our 12 seated jurors and one additional alternate for a four day trial, probably not that big a deal, but you know, you can, I think you can see pretty quickly with the rules of as COVID stand, if you're doing three or four week trials, how many alternates you might think you need to make it through. Coupled with that, our biggest courtroom, we are being told that we can't have more than 14 jurors. So even if we're going to do a five or six week trial, we can't have 16 jurors to try to deal with it. So it is a real concern about how much space you have and how many jurors you can have. My suggestion would be to people to suggest to the judge as many alternates as you can get for a trial that's going to be multiple weeks long. You should probably be suggesting like, hey, I know we usually do 14, but if we have room, can we maybe do 15 or 16? That would be my thought. You know, it only took me two days to lose one. I don't know how long it would have taken us to lose two more and start over. Well, John, this has been great. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your experience of being back on trial. And I'm sure it's going to help our colleagues who are gearing up for the opening of courts, especially now that Judge DeFiore has ordered all judges and court staff back into courthouses by May 24th. We'll see how that all works out. So I appreciate your time, John, and all of your insights. And I want to thank everyone for joining us and listening to this. And until next time, this is Paul Stein from NIPTI, and stay safe, everyone. 